Good evening. Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. It is my pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of trustees and directors, and the staff of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Before I introduce our featured writer this evening, I do want to mention to you that in the back we have several programs that are going on this month. And um, on September the 18th, we have Leota and Macy, um, a Writer's Live event. On September 23rd, we have Thomas Glave, whose book, Among the Blood People, Politics and Flesh. And we will have an exhibit, Keeping It Real, One Collector's Quest for Artifacts of African American Culture and History. And the opening reception will be Thursday, September the 26th at 6 p.m. in the poll room, this room that you're sitting in. And also we have the Compass Newsletter, which lists all our events, so please pick up one on your way out. It is my pleasure to introduce this evening M.K. Asante, who is a best-selling author, award-winning filmmaker, hip-hop artist, and professor who CNN calls a master storyteller and major creative force. The author of four celebrated books, Asante is a recipient of the Langston Hughes Award. His latest book, Buck, a memoir, was selected as a Barnes & Noble's Discover Great New Writers pick and the L.A. Times Summer Book Pick. His other books are It's Bigger Than Hip Hop, Beautiful and Ugly Too, and Like Water Running Off My Back. Asante directed The Black Candle, a Stars movie he co-wrote with Maya Angelou, who also narrates the prize-winning film. He wrote and produced the film 500 Years Later, winner, winner of five International Film Festival Awards. Asante studied at the University of London, earned a BA from Lafayette College, and an MFA from the UCLA School of Film and Television. He has toured in over 400 countries and has lectured at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, as well as hundreds of other universities. He was awarded the key to the city of Dallas, Texas. Asante has been featured on the CBS Early Show, NBC News, BBC America, and NPR. And his essays have been published in USA Today, Huffington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, and the New York Times. Mr. Asante is a tenured professor of creative writing and film in the Department of English, English and Language Arts at Morgan State University. Without further ado, please welcome M.K. Asante. Thank you. What's up? What's going on, y'all? Can you guys hear me? Yes. I think y'all can hear me. This is a nice, intimate room. Um, how's everybody doing? Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. It, it feels good to be here. Um, before I start, I just want to thank uh, all my people. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Thank the library for, for bringing me here. Um, thank uh, all the professors. I see some professors, uh, former students. Um, so the Watkins over there. What's up, y'all? So anyway, I just want to shout everybody out. Um, oh, for the benefit. Okay, cool, cool. 
there's a podcast. I like to move around when I, when I talk, you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, I want to talk a little bit about, about Buck today um, and, and tell you why I wrote it and, and, and just tell you my story, really. Buck is, is my journey. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a memoir. You good? Yeah, I think we're good. Okay, cool. I just make sure. <laughs> I don't hold you up. All right, all right, perfect. All right, so Buck is a memoir. It's a coming-of-age story. It's my story, my journey. Um, and I'm just going to start at the beginning with, with the title, Buck. Young Buck, Buck Wild, Buck Shots, Buck Town, Slave Buck, Black Buck, Buck Boy, Buck Now. See, titles are so important to me. Um, this is my fourth book. I had a, a book previously. It was a really long, super long title. It was too long. Um, and I wanted a title that would really get to the point, that would kind of smack you in the face. But at the same time, even though the title is short, it has a lot of meaning, a lot of substance, a lot of depth behind it. So you take Buck. I say Young Buck. Well, in Philly, I'm sure, just like in Baltimore, what's up, Young Buck? This is how we call each other, you know what I mean? So there's that, Buck, right? Then there's Buck Wild. You'll learn about that in a second. And when I talk about my story, right, there's um, Buck Shots, right? I talk about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Y'all say Body More Murderland? Well, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And so Buck Shots is a very, you know, it's a reality, right? Um, then there's the notion of, you know, to, uh, to make a buck, right? To make a dollar, capitalism. And that's part of the, the journey and the learning and the story, right? Um, then there's the derogatory term that they used to use for black folks, buck. Right. We got this big black buck for sale. Right. During slavery, they would, you know, call black men bucks. Um, so you got all these different meanings. And then you got the meaning of, you know, and I, this is to me the core and the heart of the book to buck the system. You know what I'm saying? Can you feel me? All right. Um, so I want to start actually by just getting right into it. So, you know, I wrote this book from the perspective of. You know, this book details my life between the ages of 13 and 18, right? The most transformative, important years of my life. If you want to understand who I am now and who I am today and what I did, you got to go back there to understand what happened, right? Um, those are the coming of age years for me. It was really important for me to write it from an authentic perspective. So it's not, you know... Me now looking back at my life and saying, well, back in the day I used to No, it's written in the voice, in the perspective of me at the time. So you grow with me. You see what I see. You have epiphanies when I have epiphanies. You have realizations when I have realizations. Right. You're observing all these things with me. You're on a journey with me instead of me kind of looking back and, you know, um, tailoring a, an experience for you. You're experiencing with me. Um, so I want to start. And I'll introduce some of the, the major players in this book. But I want to start by just reading uh, from the opening of the book. So you can get a feel for the language and the style. Chapter 1, The Fall. The fall in Philadelphia. Outside is the color of cornbread and blood. Change hangs in the air like the sneaks on the live wires behind my crib. Me and my big brother Uzi in the kitchen. He's rolling a blunt on top of the source. The one with Tyson on the cover, rocking a kufi, ice grilling through the gloss. Uzi can roll a blunt with his eyes closed. He cracks, splits, busts. Hey, yo, Milo, the Raw's crews in Philly are all three letters, he tells me. I read the cover through the tobacco guts and weed flakes. The rebirth of Mike Tyson. I'm not good. 
I'm not bad. I'm just trying to survive in this world. Awaken crews in a rude fashion on a ass like Mike Tyson at a beauty pageant. Hold up. Let me just explain. So throughout this book, I interspersed lyrics, rap lyrics from the time period. So the only chronology you really get in the book is the rap lyrics, right? And so, and then I, I give a footnote about where the lyrics came from. And, you know, that was the soundtrack. But let me just get back into the book and explain. I do this. I spit lyrics to songs under my breath all day, every day. The bars just jump out of me no matter where I am or what I'm doing. It's like hip-hop Tourette's. Uzi dumps, spreads, evens. JBM, Junior Black Mafia, he tells me. Of course, us, UPK, Uptown Killers. PhD, Play Hero and Die. HRM, Hit and Run Mob. EAM, Eriab Mobsters. ABC, Another Bad Creation. He folds, rolls, tucks. Another perfect blunt. John looks like a paintbrush. Let me explain. John can mean anything, person, place, or thing. So sometimes if we're telling a story and don't know, and, and don't, Want people to know what we're talking about? We'll plug John in for everything. Yo, the other day I was at the John around the corner with the young John from down the street. We get to the John right, and the nigga at the door all on his John. Not knowing I had that John on me, man. It was about to be on in that John. <laughs> so Uzi's a big part of the story. You know, I wanted to introduce language like John and all the words that we said in Philly. This is a language from my experience, right? And I want to introduce it. And, and you know, when I, when I wrote it initially, my editor was like, what does John mean? Because I just used the word without explaining it. So I had to go back and explain certain things. But, um, and I wanted the hip-hop to rest thing is important to me because so much, I know every, I see a lot of black, young black men in here. I know we all have hip-hop Tourette's. You're walking down the street, you open, whatever you're doing is a soundtrack playing in your head. And it's not just the men either, you know what I'm saying? It's really anybody from an urban experience. Uzi's my brother. He's my big brother. He's my hero, my role model. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about him, introduce you to him real quick. Uzi is the color of walnuts and has a long, sharp face like the African mask my dad hangs up everywhere. His name is Da'u. My parents call him Da'udi, and the hood calls him Uzi. He's got a bunch of other names, too, like some superhero. Uwap, Da'u, Uzito, Wap the Culture, Cool D, Pinch P, Big U, Barker Lark, Drop the Miss Rhyme, Big Fly, and Stilt the Kilt. And so in the opening chapter of the book, Uzi, Uzi's best friend, comes to our house and has a stolen car. And we call it a Johnny in Philly. And he's like, yo, I got this Johnny. And my brother, you know, a teenager, is like, let's go. You know, he thinks it's a great idea. I'm young. I'm like 12. I think it's a great idea, too. And I want to go. Um, and so I try to follow Uzi. And so I want to read a little bit from that scene. And this is how it always goes. Me following Uzi in everything, everywhere, like his little black Jan sport, covered in marks a lot, strapped tight to his back, koala style. Anywhere, any place. He does it, I do it. He tries it, fuck it, I'm trying it. He can't shit, why can't I? Sometimes I even duck like him under doorways, even though he's way taller and I don't even need to duck. I guess I just do it because Uzi's more than my big brother. He's my idol. I don't really care that he's taller older, smarter. I wouldn't even really know his real age if people weren't always bringing that shit up, talking about, you can't do this, you can't do that. Why? Because he's 16 and you're 12, they say. I follow Uzi to sweaty Badlands house parties that always end in crazy shirtless rumbles with everybody howling, north side, north side, in the middle of the street. 
To broad and Rockland to cop dime bags from one of the dusty bodegas with nothing but baking soda and expired bizquick on the shelves. To freestyle ciphers on South Street that the nut-ass police always break up for no reason. To crack on Jones getting off the LS 69th Street like, yo, short A, let me holler at you for a minute. To scale the fence to watch Sad Eye, the Jordan of street ball, hoop at 16th and Susquehanna. To skate the ledges and steps at Love Park until we get chased away by the cops. To bomb the Orange Line subway with Sharpies and Kiwi polish sticks. And now, to joyride through Philly in a stolen wheel. Being with Uzi makes me feel invincible, like nothing bad can happen to us. Like nothing and nobody can hurt us. I feel unfuckwittable. <laughs> I want to see how he's going to do that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, uh, some of the things I'm saying, I don't know if he has a... I don't know what he's doing with the, with the John and unfuckwittable and all that. But um, anyway, so that, that, gives you a, that gives you a feel of Uzi for, for my brother Uzi, who's, as you can see, is my hero. And, and really early on in the book... The book is shaped by two very powerful forces in my life, two very powerful men in my life. Um, there's my brother on one hand, and then there's my dad on the other hand, right? And, and my dad is very different than my brother. Um, you know, my dad, they call my dad the father of Afrocentricity. He's um, extremely Afrocentric. He, uh, you know, and, and my parents both have very interesting backgrounds. My dad is one of 16 children um, and grew up in a shack in Georgia. Um, my mom is from Brooklyn, New York, from Bed-Stuy, um, and she, so my mom is city and my dad is country, right? Um, it's true. <laughs> um, and so, and they have different sensibilities, you know? Um, early on in that first chapter, when, when my brother comes with the car, they leave, my brother tells me I can't go, they go with the stolen car, jailbreak joyful, running down the street with this Chevy celebrity, and, um... About 10 minutes later, they come running back in the crib. Yo, get out, get out, get out. About a couple minutes after that, 20 cops come in the house, raid the house. And that's really the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. I'm going to get to my dad, but I'm just kind of giving you a setup. Because when, when that happens, it causes a real schism in my family. Um, my, my dad's attitude is kind of like, we ain't got no bail money. We're not going to help him. You know, that's it. You know, he, he made a choice. He's a man now. Let him do his thing. My mom is obviously has a very different attitude. And so they, they fight about that. And it's really the beginning of the end for my family, as I knew it at the time. Um, so like I said, my dad is this preacher. And my dad, you know, throughout the book, early on, him and my brother are like these opposing figures. Because my dad wants to keep me away from my brother <laughs> in a lot of ways. Because he thinks he's a bad influence. And... I want to be with my brother, and also my dad isn't there a lot, right? And so we got this situation um, early on in the book. I want to read you a little bit about my dad, and then I want to get into my mom. Pops is always preaching Afrocentricity. He was a Church of Christ minister way back when, one of those child preachers, and he still sounds like he's in the pulpit when he talks about black people, white people, and the struggle. I remember this debate he took me to at East Stroudsburg University a few years back. Him versus Cornell West versus Arthur Schlesinger. It was packed, standing room only. I remember how West, this cool black dude with a big afro and a tight three-piece suit, talked with his hands flying real fast like he was conducting an orchestra. And how Schlesinger, this old white guy with hair the color of milk, had a red bow tie and sounded like a statue. I remember the cheers, the boos, the ad-libs. Most of all, though... 
I remember how dope my pops was. His passion, energy, confidence, intelligence. Half the time, yo, I didn't even know what they were talking about. Hegemony, pedagogy, subverting the dominant paradigm. But I was proud. Our crib is mad Afrocentric. Naked African statues standing everywhere. Ritual mass ice grilling down from the walls. Portraits of Martin, Malcolm, Harriet. From the wallpaper to the plates, everything is stamped with Africa. Even my favorite porn series, My Baby Got Back, is made by a company called Afrocentric Productions. <laughs> Beauties that give up the booty, the box under my bed says. Mr. Marcus, Lexington Steel, and loudmouth Wesley Pipes nailing Nubian queens like Janet Jackme, Obsession, Midori, Monique, and Lacey Duvall in doggy style, reverse cowgirl, and missionary. I tell pops about the other Afrocentrics. And he's disgusted. <laughs> Say what? But he's the one who's always talking about how black people should have their own stores, own banks, own schools. Shouldn't we have our own porn studios too? I mean, what's more Afrocentric than black pussy? So this is um, a big issue in the beginning of the book. My dad versus my brother, right? And what happens, what happens in my journey is my brother gets sent away to Arizona. What is that? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so my brother gets sent away to Arizona. You know, my parents are like, what are we going to do with him? You know, can't figure it out. So they send my brother to Arizona. My dad uh, and my mom, by the way, all this time, my mom is kind of breaking down mentally. My mom, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is my mom suffered from mental illness. You know, she was suicidal a lot of the time. So what I did in the book was I interspersed my mom's personal diary. I used to read my mom's personal. My mom went to an institution, a mental hospital, um, and while she was there, I used to read her personal diary, her innermost thoughts about me, about my dad leaving. My dad eventually leaves. Um, about you know, But even before he left, just their relationship, the con so many intricacies and nuances. My mom, you know, she wrote these letters to, to herself with the intention that no one would ever read them. And so it's crazy that back then I was reading them anyway, and I got in trouble for that eventually, but also they're in the book, you know, and now millions of people are reading it. So it's kind of crazy, but my mom's letters are in there. She talks about the most personal things, like I say, from drug addiction to suicide and to, you know, me, my dad, my brother, all these things. So my brother's in Arizona. As soon as he gets to Arizona, he gets locked up, right? And, it, you know, they sent him to Arizona to get away from Philly. But if you know anything about trouble, it all, you, go, you can go anywhere, you know what I'm saying? If you, it'll find you. So my brother gets locked up in Arizona. Uh, I told you my dad's the father of Afrocentricity. Um, my brother gets locked up in Arizona for having sex with an underage white girl. <laughs> of, all, of all things, right? There's so much irony in, in my story and in my journey. Um, but that's one of the things, again, that caused a major rift, right? And especially like Arizona, of all places, it's not a good look, right? So my, my mom's hospitalized, my, my brother's gone, and now my dad's gone, right? So this basically sets the stage for that part I told you about, Buck Wild. Um, yeah, that's basically what happens next in my, in my journey. You know, um, my brother's friends who were guys on the block who were about my brother's age, 17, 18, 19, they became my new big brothers. Um, you know, I, I wanted to be close to my brother and I think I, I saw through them some kind of, some kind of connection. Um, and so I, I actually described these guys, um, 
We call it 10 G's, the area where we used to hang out. I walk up to the corner of 10th and Godfrey. We call it 10 G's, where all of Uzi's boys chill. They stand where they always stand, between the liquor store and the corner store, next to the Fern Rock Apartments fence, under the train tracks, and across the street from Rocksteady, this bug boy who sits on a crate all day with a broken radio, rocking his head back and forth to a beat no one else can hear. My mom calls them the corner boys because they're always out there, posted like guards at a checkpoint. They hug the block, huddled and hustle, eyeing everything and everyone, everywhere, every day. And so these guys are part of a group called UPK, Uptown Killers. Um, Nice name, right? Um, (laughs) Nice, friendly name. And so they become like my family. And so the rest of like this part of the story is just wilding out. Um, You know, I get introduced to drug, sex, violence at a very young age. You know, a lot of this book, the story is really kind of growing up too fast in some ways. Um, Well, not in some ways, in in all ways, really. Um, And so I'm not going to, I don't have to get in, I I don't have that much time, so I won't get into like all those parts, but trust me, it's it's crazy, it's wild. Um, You know, it's kind of like the worst nightmare for a parent, things that you want your 13, 14-year-old to be doing. Um, I I was doing those things. Um, I got kicked out of all the schools that I went to, um, you know, and a lot of this came from the family situation, right? Re- you know, being angry with that situation, um, having a lot of frustration with my dad, um, not understanding my mom's uh, depression, you know, um, and, and her addiction and, and what she was going through, and then being angry that my brother was in solitary confinement for almost a year um, in Arizona. So these things were like playing themselves out in my behavior and in, in my attitude. I was self-destructive. Um, and so it's going real bad <laughs> for, 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 for a lot of uh, what you would say act two, right? Act two is kind of the, the, the middle part of the story. You know, things are going downhill. Um, and there's a couple things that, that really saved me, and I want to talk about those things, because this is ultimately a book, obviously, I'm here. <laughs> um, it's a book about redemption. You know, it's a book about family, um, survival, thriving, all these things. So... I'm in Texas. My, my boy, Jordan, comes to me, and he says, yo, man, he's on, he was on the run. He had an APB out for him. He said, yo, I'm on, you know, I got caught up. He's like my age. We're like 16. We're like, let's drive to Texas because I got a cousin in Fort Worth, right? It's a good idea, right? <laughs> so, you know, I think I had a permit. He didn't have a license. You know, good ideas. So... We end up driving to Fort Worth, Texas. My cousin is older. He's, he's like 21 at the time. He thinks it's a great idea, too. He's like, come on down here. So we end up driving to Texas 25 hours straight. And while I'm down in Texas, my mom tries to commit suicide again. She'd already kicked me out the house. We've been having the issues. She found me reading a journal, all this stuff. So this time, I get the call. I'm in Texas. We drive back up north to Philly. And, um, and Philly's in a lot of ways, it's very similar to Baltimore. You know, I, I live in Baltimore here now, and I see a lot of similarities. But um, anyway, we drive back up to, to Philly and, you know, I have this conversation with my mom. It's kind of long, drawn-out conversation. And she tells me a lot about her life, about how she grew up. And even the journal entries, when you read them, they're always going to connect what I'm going through to what she was going through. So when I start talking about survival and being a man and being on my own, my mom reflects on her journey in Brooklyn and about what she went through and about seeing her mom and what they went through 
together, right? And she always brings it back. You know, when I when I start in the in the book, I start wilding out and, and, and doing some illegal things. And my mom talks about how she used to roll bums in the hallway of her apartment in, in Brooklyn. You know, so she always connects kind of what I'm doing in the contemporary struggle to what she was doing, and and she connects it in that way. But anyway, when I go to see her, she tells me like, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a, in school at this point either. Um, and so she tells me, she says, you know, you got to go to school. Education is so important. My parents are very the educators. They're big on education. Even in the midst of the chaos, they knew that education was important. So she's telling me, you got to go to school. And I'm telling my mom, like, yo, no school will take me. You know, I would go, but no school will take me at this point, you know. And um, she says, well, what about if I found a school that would take you? You know, she's in the hospital. You know what I'm saying? Like, what am I going to say? Of course, mom. My mom's very resourceful, so of course she found a school uh, about a week later that, that would take me. It was an alternative school. That's what they called it, alternative. So I get there, and it's like the weirdest kids I've ever seen in my life at this school. And I'm like, yo, I'm not this alternative. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is next level, you know what I mean? Like, take me, to the, take me back to the pub, baby. So... <laughs> You know, um, but I stuck it out because, you know, my mom or whatever. So I just, you know, and I describe, you know, this is a book about education. It's about miseducation, re-education, self-education, street education, and the difference and the distance between school and education. That's what this book is about, really, at, the, at its core. And so I describe all the different schools I went to in Philadelphia. Some of them look like prisons. Some of them look like warehouses. This alternative school, though, looked like a house, looked like a gingerbread house or something. It had a completely different vibe. And inside it was different, too. Um, and this is one of the things that, that really turned me around in a lot of ways. Um, I'm in this class at this school, and a teacher puts a blank piece of paper in front of us. She says, write. Now, at this point in my life, I hadn't done schoolwork in years. So it wasn't even an, like a thought to me to actually do the assignment. So I'm just chilling there, <sighs> waiting for the day to be over. And she comes over to me, and she's like, write. And I'm like, what you want me to write? Yo, I got an attitude. I don't got my 16-year-old attitude. Yo, what you want me to write, yo? And she's like, um, write anything you want. So, you know, you know how people always tell you to write anything you want. How, they, how do you feel? And then you tell them how you feel, and then it's a problem, right? So, okay, write anything I want. Okay, all right. I got something for you. So I wrote, fuck school. First thing I wrote. And I waited for her to kick me out. I wanted to just kick me out, make my, make my day easy. Because then I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to my neighborhood, chill, you know what I mean? Whatever. So she's like, she looks at it and she's like, good, now keep going. I'm like, oh, see, I got one of, one of these teachers. So keep going. So let me read a little bit from that section for you. Because this is important. Okay. I turn, the, I turn the page over. It's blank again. The blank page is the starter pistol that fires and triggers my mind to sprint. What will I write? What will I say? Will I say what I write? Write what I say? Something funny? Something serious? Something about my family, about Amir, Ryan. How will I start? Whose story will I tell? My story? 
A story about a boy from Philly, maybe? A lost boy who wants to find himself but doesn't know where to look? Who wants to tell his story but doesn't know where to begin? Or in? Who searches anyway and discovers something about himself, about the world? I stare at the blank page, an ocean of white alive with possibility. I hear myself take a breath, then exhale, deep, like I just rose from underwater. It's like I'm at the free throw line again. Foul shots, like the game is on the line again. I remember something my dad told me, shoot to make it. My hand shaking, trembling like it's freezing. Then it hits me, a silence louder than all the music I've heard in my life. All the light in the world in one beam before me. I grip the pen and something shoots down my spine, sits me straight up. The pen feels heavy, like it's made of stone. I stare deep into the blank page and see myself. I feel something I've never felt before, purpose. I don't know what my exact purpose is yet, but I know it has something to do with this pen and this blank page. I am a blank page. Holding the pen this way, snug and firm in my fists, makes me feel like I can write my future, spell out my destiny in sharp strokes. And so that's a very powerful moment for me, obviously, in my life. Um, That blank page represented, like I said, a metaphor for me, but also like possibility and my voice school up until that point for me had been all about regurgitation and rote memorization copy the board you know what I mean and 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 a prison like atmosphere right where you got metal detecting you so this was the first time I'd ever really been challenged in that kind of setting and 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 asked to express myself and I loved it you know there was something exciting about it I remember going to the teacher and saying you know I really like this writing thing she said you want to be a good writer you got to be a good reader she gave me a book right um I came back the next day I said can I get another book she said finish the one I gave you I said I finished it she said no you didn't finish it I said yes I did I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness starving hysterical naked dragging themselves she said damn you finished the book I said yeah I finished the book um I said I want another one you know I hadn't done like I said I hadn't done school work for for a while um I rebelled against everything so this was like you know being in the desert and water and the things that she was giving me to read were different they weren't like traditional things. They were things I could relate to, things that resonated with me. These people were rebels and outlaws and writers who were writing about bucking the system and things like that. And that appealed to me. Um, and I didn't even know you could write some of the things that those people were writing and be celebrated for it. Um, you know, and so that appealed to me very, very strongly. Um, fast forward a little bit. Because this book is about family. It's about relationships. It's about finding your purpose, but it's also about family. You know, I said my dad left, and, and, me, and his, me and his relationship was, was very difficult and, and problematic throughout most of, the, most of the story, most of the book. Um, I had a lot of anger, resentment toward him for leaving my mom. Um, you know, I, that's one of the most painful things, I think, in the book is, is that day when he leaves my mom and my mom crying. And just all that weight of my mom's mental illness now being on me as a kid. Um, that caused a lot of resentment. And so anyway, so that's a a story in the book. And what happens is I get arrested, right? This is after the school and everything. I get arrested for really being just in the wrong environment. Um, I was in a a street called J Street in Philly, which uh, at the time was an open-air drug market. And uh, I was there because I was giving these guys a ride down there. And on this ride, one of the guys ended up stabbing another guy, it was crazy. Um, but back, back in the day, in the late 90s, J Street was all about promethazine, Xanax, Oxycontin, all this stuff before it was even popular as it is today. Um, so anyway, 
I get arrested. I'm at the 35th district, um, um, and I have to stay there for the weekend. I call my cousin, and she can't come get me, so she calls my dad, right, because my mom is, is not able to get me. She calls my dad, and I hadn't seen my dad in a while at this point, right? So my dad comes, and he picks me up from 35th, and he's pissed. You know, he's, like I say, he's from Georgia. He's southern. He don't play that kind of stuff, he, and he's just, you know, he just has a different way. He doesn't understand what's going on in the city and, and hip-hop and all this stuff. He's not really getting it. And, um, and he's mad at me, and I'm mad at him. And so we're mad at each other. Um, now, Broad Street is like North Ave. That's the equivalent. So we're on Broad Street, driving back from the police station. And my dad looks at me and says, you want to fight me? <laughs> and I, I said, um, you know, actually, I, I do. So he pulled the car over real calmly, you know what I mean? Broad Street, North Ave, right? Same thing. And we're in front of Checkers. And he gets out the car, and he just puts his, you know what I mean? He puts his, yeah. I'm like, oh. So I put mine up, and, you know, within a minute, we're, we're interlocked, and we're fighting in, the, in front of Checkers in the middle of Broad Street. And it's so crazy to think about that moment, but that was really the, be, the beginning of our new relationship in so many ways. It, you know, we, we fought a little, we wrestled. He ended up kind of pinning me on the car and, and kind of pressing the words into me at, at the end of our, our fight. You know, I love you, boy. I love you, boy. Pressing those words into, into my heart, into my soul. Um, and, you know, I had been in jail for the weekend. And there was a soul food restaurant across the street called Dwight's, Dwight's Soul Food. And I, I mean, and it was just like perfect, like, can we get some food, Chad? Um, and then over, over yams and collard greens and macaroni and cheese and all this stuff, we talked for the first time like men, like man to man, you know. Um, and a lot of the anger and frustration I had, you know, it just subsided because being around him just made me feel complete again and whole. Um, and so that's a huge part of the story that, you know, gets resolved in a way. Um, and, you know, that's a big part of my life. Um, I begin to start to understand certain things. Like I have epiphany. I told you I have epiphanies, right? So like there's one, there's one section in here where I talk about I have an epiphany about why black people couldn't read back in the day. Because, you know, you hear certain things, but you never really understand why. So they say, um, I say, now I, now I see why reading, this is when I start reading and writing and my mind opens, right? Now I see why reading was illegal for black people during slavery. I discovered that I think in words. So the more words I know, the more things I can think about. My vocab and thoughts grow together like the stem and petals of a flower. Reading was illegal because if you limit someone's vocab, you limit their thoughts. They can't even think of freedom because they don't have the language to. So these are like some of the epiphanies and realizations that I had. And it made me a voracious reader. Um, it made me want to be a writer. It made all these things, you know, um, possible. The book ends with, you know, I talk about this hip, these hip-hop lyrics that are scattered throughout the book. So different parts of the book, you'll see these, this bar from whoever, from Nas or from whoever, right? During that time period, a song that was resonated with me, right? As the book grows and as I grow, those lyrics change and evolve, right? So you start seeing new artists emerge, artists like maybe Black Star or Lauryn Hill. And it's influencing me and influencing my mind as I'm starting to read and understand larger things. When Black Star says, at exactly which moment do you start to realize that life without knowledge is 
You know what I mean? So those things affected me greatly. And um, by the end of the book, something really amazing happens. I go from quoting all these different rappers, and it kind of starts out with the more mainstream rappers, and then it gets into you know, what some people might call the more conscious rappers. But then by the end of the book, the lines that I'm quoting are bars from myself, things that I wrote. So this book is about finding your own voice. And, and so you have all these other voices in your head until you find your own voice. Um, one of the things that's real kind of amazing for me, just in terms of full circle, I talked about how, and then I'm going to open for questions in a second, um, but I talked about how, you know, artists like Black Star, Talib Kweli and, and Most Death, they, you know, during the late 90s, they, they influenced me as a young, as a young man. Um, their music, um, it was something different I'd never heard before. Um, and what they were saying was powerful and it resonated with me in a lot of ways, like I said, transform, helped help transform my life. And so, in a lot of ways, Buck is an homage to hip-hop. But um, recently, I, I was asked to be on a song. Um, and one of the people who asked me to be on the song was Talib Kweli. And uh, so my first hip-hop song that I was ever on was with Talib Kweli, who was someone who inspired me when I was just a kid. And so it's kind of amazing how life works in terms of, you know, 360 and things coming back around and... Um, yeah, you know, there's so much that I'm, I'm leaving out about my story and about my journey that's in these pages. Um, so much about my experience on the street. You know, I believe that the whole world is a university, you know? And so, you know, you're not limited to any one teacher. My teachers come from everywhere, all over. And so in the book, I'm running into all these different people from all different walks of life, right? Crazy characters, right? Um, dynamic characters, but they're not always the professors or teachers you would expect. A bum on the street one time tells me, he says, young man, do you know what soul is? I was like, soul train. <laughs> he was like, no, soul is the graceful survival against impossible circumstances. I mean, that's a professor, if you ask me. I got professors in college that didn't tell me nothing like that. Um, you know, and I paid them. We paid them. Oh, man, come on now. So that's part of, you know, when I talk about education, it's, it's really, you know, it's not about school. It's about education. It's about that in, engagement and learning and, and opening your mind. And so, um, so that's Buck. I want to open it up now and, and, and get your questions and, and, and thoughts. So, yeah. Please talk into the mic. Just an, um, an observation and a question. Cool. Um, I'm one of the professors at Morgan, but I didn't actually teach you. <laughs> I, Why well, didn't actually go to Morgan? <laughs> I, know, I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, um, I, I remember um, being in a class with um, M.K. Sante, and um, he just come in from Italy, <clears throat> tells me. In those days, he looked like uh, Commandant Marcos. He had on braids and he had a cap and so on. And um, during the um, lecture, this was a lecture at Morgan, he said, um, I want to talk about the tempest and the conversation between Prospero and Caliban. Caliban. Uh, Prospero was an Italian nobleman. Caliban was a savage slave, apparently, and he was exploited by 
Prospero. And Prospero thought that Caliban was not doing what he was supposed to do. They had a confrontation. Prospero said to Caliban, I thought you my language. And Caliban says, and I use that language to curse you. We see here a young man who has used the language that he has got to curse the system. Before I am, um, <coughs> I'm retired now, so I can do a whole lot of different things I couldn't do nice. before. But when I looked at the book and I saw it was a biography, I'm a student of biographies, so I said to myself, well, I need to ask him some questions. First of all, the biography, it's unique. No two people can have the same biography. So this is the reason why I was so interested in your story. Not his story, H-I-S slash T-O-R-Y, but your story. The other thing about biographies is that there's usually a transformative moment. And you mentioned about, what, about seven or eight of them, (laughs) okay, which were transformative moments. And I'm saying, oh, my goodness, this is this kind of stuff that is very, very interesting, very, very enthusiastic about it. And not only that, I was also interested in the transition from your experiences to writing. The writing is very, very critical. We may speak, it goes through the air, nobody hears anything about it. But when you take the time and energy to write, it means that you put in writing something that subsequent generations can regurgitate and talk about. See, Well, you have done most of the things that I had in mind, and I really salute you for what you've done. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I don't think that was a question in there. But uh, I, I will say, just, to, just in terms of what you said about... Uh, there's so many things you said, so I can... Oh, but, but also, one thing that's interesting that you guys should know, because sometimes when I, I, you know, people see, or they go into Barnes and nobody see biography, and they say, oh, you're young, you know, how you write an autobiography? This isn't an autobiography. Autobiography uh, is comprehensive, and so he was talking about biography, and, you know, autobiographies are usually comprehensive. They talk about your whole life, and they're like kind of historical documents. A lot of times, you, um, you know, get second and tertiary resources and, and you know, find out... A memoir is different. A memoir deals with, and a memoir is a part, it's a form of biography. So he's right. But I'm just saying, just separating so you guys know the difference. A memoir deals with a particular portion of your life, a part of your life, you know, something that you want to focus on. So a memoir could just be a summer you spent in New York, or it could be, you know, a longer period of time. But a memoir is kind of specific on a certain time period, uh, as opposed to kind of comprehensive. So... Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for the comment. Yeah, let's go here. Hi, good evening. Good evening. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know, during the times during your adversity and, um, you know, during the times of your struggles, especially with your family and everything, um, I guess at what point in your life did you feel like, you know what, I'm surrounded by so many, so many negative um, influences. I want to stand out from the crowd. I want to grow up to be successful. And, you know, uh, that's a great question. And I, can I an- I'm going to answer it with... A line. Okay. So when I was in the 35th precinct, these are some of the things that I thought about. And this is one of those moments, right? And, you know, there's so much, again, I didn't mention so many other things in the book. My, one of my best friends, Amir, gets killed in the book. 
again, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he's a, he's a victim of gun violence. Um, so I saw a lot of people perishing around me. The guys that I talked about who were in the gang, who were older than me, they, I saw them, you know, they went from being the cool kids in my neighborhood to joining a cult, right? Like a real cult um, and waiting for spaceships and all of that um, to being hardcore drug addicts. So I saw like the whole cycle, right? Um, but I want to read this, this epiphany I had in, 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 in jail. Decisions lead to options. Options to choices. Choices to freedom. We all design our own reality, write our own script, build our own house or prison or coffin. Me against law and order. So my name is Milo, by the way. And, you know, that, that's what people called me back in the day. That is actually my name. I've got it tatted on my arm. And it, it always stood for me against law and order, right? Me against law and order is about being a true rebel, pushing against the grain, making my own path, bucking the system. I think about this show I saw on the Nature Channel the other day about elephants, about how despite weighing up to 25,000 pounds and standing 13 feet tall, they can still be chained. How, I wondered. It starts when they're babies. Some asshole puts a metal chain attached to a wooden peg nailed into the ground around the baby elephant's foot. The baby elephant struggles but fails to break free and learns at that very moment not to struggle. That struggle is useless. Later on, even when the elephant can easily break free, it doesn't. I look around at all the sad, hard, gray, black faces in the 35th district and see elephants. So, yeah, that's my answer. Yeah. Oh, they're right here. Um, I got hey, Young Buck. What's up, Young Buck? <laughs> I got a question. Is you going to um, give out your books? Yeah, I'll be I'll be signing the books right out there, and so you got your mom and dad with you? No. You you by yourself? No. Oh, okay. Well, whoever that's she's gonna get you a book probably. Right. If she doesn't, lean on her a little bit. Um. Okay, over here. But the book the book does have a dedication in the beginning. And the dedication is to all the young bucks. So when I saw my young buck, got you know, yeah. Um, I'm actually really inspired by your book. Um, I'm actually a, a troubled teen. I'm in a residential treatment center as Word. right now. Word. And um, I started writing about two years ago because um, I re I realized it was a good way to get my thoughts on paper and. Um, express myself and I was just gonna ask how do you keep that drive how did you keep the drive to keep on writing even through the hard times yeah that's a great question um and you know one thing I haven't really talked about tonight really yet is just the craft of writing um and writing in general you know one thing about writing new writers in here raise your hand Okay, cool. A lot of writers. Um, well, you all know writing is a struggle. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> it is a, that's the easy, uh, uh, that doesn't even scratch the surface of the struggle of writing, especially when we get to the personal stuff, to the stuff that's intimate and the things that, you know, someone asked me the other day, um, 
you know, how do you know what story to tell? I say everyone's got something in their mind, right? A story, an idea for a story, for something they want to write that scares the living out of them, right? You've got a story, an idea that even when you think about it, you say, nah, I can't, I can't go there. I can't do that because it's just, it's going to bring up so much. It's going to be painful. You already, that's the story you got to write, though. That's the one we want to read. That's the one that's interesting. That's where all the juice is, right? Um, and so to answer your question, every day is a struggle as a writer, right? Some days you, you get up and you, you, you know, and you only do a little bit of writing or you don't even get to the writing. And then that makes you, you know, I get physically sick if I don't write. You know, if a couple days go by and I don't write, I, I start getting physically ill and then I wonder like, yo, what's up with me? And I, oh, I haven't. You know what I mean? So it's a struggle. And, you, you know, some days are going to be better than other days. You know, there are days when it's like, but even I try to just write something, even if it's just like a word or a sentence or just something, you know, because you're right. It is cathartic. It's therapeutic. You know what I mean? So writing it really helps, especially because it's just you in that in that page. Right. Um, Even if no one ever sees it. So the one thing is push through, push through. One of the things about people ask me about, you know, being a writer and being a successful writer and how to make it as a writer. One of the things that I just can't stress enough is persistence and perseverance, you know, pushing through even when, you know, even when you don't feel like writing. Right. Even when you're sick of writing, write. Even when you can't write, write. It's like playing basketball. I, I do a lot of basketball analogies in this book because I play basketball and I love sports in general. Um, but, you know, if you're a shooter in basketball, right, and you start missing shots, what does the coach tell you? Keep shooting. That's how you that, – you're, you're going to miss shots. It's the reality. Michael Jordan missed shots. But you got to shoot through it, right? And what you don't want to do is you miss a couple shots and then you get timid and you stop shooting. You come down, you get the ball, you're wide open, and you pass it. Because you're, now, you're, now you're psychologically, you know what I mean? You're damaged now. You're like, oh, I'm a, you know. But no, the best thing to do is to shoot every time. You know, keep shooting. My, this guy right here, I play basketball with him. He, that's all he does is keep shooting. He always just shoots. <laughs> he doesn't know how to pass. <laughs> all right. Who's, 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 yes. Um, I just want to thank you, but you said uh, several things that confuse me. Your father is a father figure to lots of people, and often we have fathers who are not father figures to lots of people. And we also we also hear in in the world of youth development that if we put strong, courageous, confident black men in front of black boys, they they will become strong just by being in their very presence. That obviously didn't happen to you. And so, well, I would argue that it did. But it took a long time. Of course. Without struggle, there's no progress. But, yeah. But but do you think, it seems to me, I'm going to ask you a provocative question. It seems to me you choosing a life on the streets is a choice because you're actually from, I may be making a presumption, you're from a middle-class, bourgeois, Jack and Jill family. Basically. Oh, hell no, I'm not. You don't think? <laughs> you don't think so? Your yeah, father, that, your that's, father that's, is, 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 is an intellectual you're, hero. You're, and and that, that doesn't happen to many boys in this city. Yeah, you're, you're, at, you're absolutely right about being an intellectual hero and being an activist and being courageous. But uh, bourgeois, Jack and Jill family, I am not from. We, we, we have no parts of it. We don't... And I didn't even I never knew what that was. Well, like, well, I still my, don't even understand well, it. My question and, is, and part of the reason, you know, part of the reason uh, I wrote the book is because, you know, looking from the outside in, 
people assume all types of stuff. I probably would look at you and assume things about you. I might be wrong, mm-hmm. right? So that's the thing about the reason why we tell our own stories is to, to give you insight into how it was. And yes, my brother made a choice. I made a choice. There's no doubt about it. And there are kids who don't make that yes. choice. The choice is made on them. Exactly. So. And so, so there's that and that's and that's totally owned. Yes, we made choices. And that's why I say, I just read you, choices lead to option lead to leads to freedom, right? I say choices, decisions lead to options lead to freedom. That's an that's a realization I had in a jail cell at 17 years old that these are choices choices and even sometimes when you feel like you don't have a choice you have a choice right even within that minimal restraint so yeah um other uh, you know i definitely acknowledge the fact that people make choices and that puts them in their situation and we definitely made choices that we had to suffer through but in the same time you never know what families are dealing with you know families deal with so much so on the outside things could look one way but inside it could be all messed up so that's something that, you know, you got to got you, everyone should just be aware of. When you see people, you never know what struggles they're going through. You know, when you're when you're 13 years old and your mom is trying to kill herself and your dad isn't there and your brother is in solitary confinement. What are you talking about? What choice are you talking about? <laughs> Next. <laughs> so as a kid, even though like you were turned to the life of the streets and you turned your life around. What made you turn to music when everybody around? Huh? Oh, what made you turn to music when everybody around you wants to be that basketball player? Um, well, I didn't really turn to music. I turned to literature. I turned to writing. I turned to reading. Um, music actually came later. I did, like I said, the first song I ever did, the Talib Kweli song, that was like a couple months ago. So you know, uh, I would, but but music influenced me greatly. Right. And, I, and that's definitely something that, you know, music is kind of like the soundtrack to, to my journey. And I mean, hip hop specifically is the soundtrack to my journey. So all throughout the, the book and my story and my journey, hip hop is like that beat. It's that heartbeat, really, of the story. So music always was kind of a safe place I could go to. And also listening to people whose struggles I could relate to. You know, um, in the mainstream space, young black men don't have a whole lot of people that are talking specifically to them about things that they could relate to. And so that was one of the things I related to. Um, but one thing that's important, Young Buck, is, you know, realizing that we've got so many more options besides basketball and music. You know, there, there's so many possibilities. And that's why I said I stare at the blank page, an ocean of white Blank with possibility. There's so many things you can do. And so we can't limit ourselves to just one or two things, right? The whole world is your oysters. You can do whatever you want. So, yeah, so turn to literature. Uh, yeah, we're, yeah. Peace and blessings, brothers. Hey, Good what's to up, see bro? you again. Good to see you, man. Um, just as an artist, I'd like to thank you for inspiring me and what I do. Um, I hope everybody catches that, the role that hip-hop is playing in this, in this, uh, this brother's molding. Um, the hip-hop of today, well, I, I, we shouldn't even call it hip-hop, but the music of today will find it hard for a young teen today coming up to draw from that strength. And so I um, hope everybody noticed that. But, um, brother, um, tell me this. The, the, fight, the fight with your father and that, um, that, that culmination. As a young man, like, kind of break that down for us, the baby food, how that, that mesh. Um, and I would like to say and, and comment, you wonderfully mesh hip-hop and academia. 
and um and and that's um I'm very I'm very uh, appreciative appreciative of that. But your father was trying to say these things and get into you before then, and there was something about you at that stage that allowed that because, smell of soul food. And because that, this is what and this is important. No matter who anybody is, when you have a family, they're your family first. And if they're not around, he may be being a father intellectually to somebody else, but you're not home, and I'm not seeing you, and you're not present in my life. So that's the reality. And so whatever you're trying to tell me, I ain't trying to hear it, period, because I don't even know who you are. And who you are to a 13-year-old has nothing to do with intellectual ideas and has everything to do with the reality of being present. Um, and so... For me, that's what it was about. And those, that's, I think, part of the rejection. And I think my brother, oh, my brother, there's a funny, I want to read you guys something funny real quick. My brother and my dad always fought. And I think that influenced me. Um, there's a funny moment that happens. So my brother, my brother and my dad are always kind of fighting. And... Um, one day, my, my, so I say Uzi doesn't really get down with the whole Afrocentricity. I think he's still mad about the whole Star Wars thing from when we were little. Uzi used to love Star Wars, and he kept begging my parents for a Luke Skywalker action figure. Finally, my dad took him to Toys R Us. They came back. Uzi was heated. He got me Lando Calrissian, Uzi said. Who? I said. Exactly. Nobody knows who he is. Lando Calrissian. Who that, I said? Fucking Billy D. Williams, the corny black dude. He has no gun, no weapon, no special towers, and he talks like he's in a Coke 45 commercial. The power of Coke 45 works every time. They didn't have Luke, I asked. They had everybody, Luke, Obi-Wan, Han Solo, but dad wouldn't get them because they're white. So part of um, when you're young, you know, part of, you know, growing up with parents that have different views. You know, my dad wore dashiki every day. It was like every day. He had dashiki for every day of the week. Um, and, you know, that's different. Obviously, no one else's parents are doing that. You know what I mean? So it's, it's very different. But one of the things that's, that's you realize, obviously, later on, you learn to appreciate those things. Like, oh, they were exposing me to different things and not trying to, you know, now I, I think differently because of those things and I'm appreciative. But when you're a kid, you just want Luke Skywalker. You don't want Lando Calrissian. And so part of the, the conflict I think you're talking about is being a kid, you know what I mean, and, and wanting to be normal in a sense or wanting to participate in the things that your friends are participating in and not understanding all the ideological stuff that comes with you know something like afrocentricity and so part of that is you know and you see it in my brother let's get to some more questions we're gonna have one more question and then we're gonna have the book signing which he'll be signing here at this desk oh okay this cool. is the last question okay can uh, is this on yeah okay can, <laughs> can you say something for us about the films you made and about films you may make in the future and I mean writing is obviously so important to you and means something special is there something that film means to you in particular definitely definitely that's a great question um yeah you know for me art art is like language right so the more for me art is language so just like language you speak Swahili I was in Kenya Talk to people in Kenya. You know, you speak German, you go to Germany, Munich, talk to people in Germany. You know, you, you, you speak um, English, you're pretty good over here, right? So 
language helps you communicate. And the same thing with art for me, right? The language of visual art, right? The language of painting, right? It's a language. Some people get it. Some people don't understand that language, right? The language of poetry. Some people get it. Some people don't understand that language. Some people can't even read, right? The language of cinema. These are all languages. And so for me, looking at heroes of mine like Paul Robeson, I wanted to be multilingual as an artist. So that means I want to speak poetry. I want to speak memoir. I want to speak fiction. I want to speak uh, movie. I want to speak all these different languages because sometimes I have an idea and it's a memoir, or sometimes I have an idea and it's a poem, or sometimes I have an idea and it's a movie, or a rap, or whatever, but I want, it to, I want the language to be available to me and accessible to me, right? Just like when you speak Swahili, there are certain concepts that only exist in Swahili. You can't even translate it into another language. It only exists in Swahili. There are certain things that I can do in a memoir I can never do in a film. Certain things I can do in film that I can't do in music or poem. So all these things are related to me. My films previously have been mostly documentaries. The last movie I made was with Maya Angelou. It's called The Black Candle. It's on Stars TV right now. Basically uses Kwanzaa as a prism to celebrate the black experience. Um, and so that's one of the movies I made. The movie I'm working on now is the Buck movie. Um, you know, Buck is going to be my first feature narrative film. Like I said, the three previous films were uh, feature documentaries, so this is a feature narrative film. Um, so, yeah, uh, when the book came out, I mean, the book has been doing really well. The book is already, like, in a second printing. It went into a second printing a week after it came out. Um, I was just in L.A. Don Cheadle's uh, production company wants to buy the rights and, and the TV and film rights and all that stuff. So we met with them, talking to them about, you know, bringing him on maybe as my, my dad or something. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, so that's going to be the next movie I, I, I make, I write, I direct. Um, it's very important for me with, that, with this particular film, too, to write it and direct it. Um, you know, it's so personal. Um, I can't see how I could ever give it to someone else to do that. Um, and anyway, that's just kind of how I am anyway as an author. I want to control the whole process. But um, yeah, so that's the project I'm working on. Um, I know we didn't get a chance to get to everyone's questions. Just want to remind you guys, if, if you do have questions, you don't get a chance to ask me tonight, you guys can follow me on Twitter at MK Asante. Um, I'm on Facebook, Asante MK, and Instagram, MK Asante. You guys can hit me up there and ask me more questions, um, dialogue with me. I definitely want to hear what you think about the book as you read it. Even though we've talked a lot about a lot of different things, I still feel like, and this is true, you guys don't even know the half yet, for real. Like, there's just so much more. So um, nuances, complexities, you know what I mean? Um, things aren't always what they seem. So, yeah, read the book, and uh, I'll be here to take more questions and sign and, and do all that. And thank, thank you all for being so attentive. Thank you for being here. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. <laughs>